0: Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen.
1: Greetings for Steve Jorgensen and for iUniverse. This is J. Douglas Barker, an intriguing book titled Outrageous Grace, a story of tragedy and forgiveness written by Grace L. Fabian. And this is the updated version. Now here to share a very personal story is our guest, Grace L. Fabian. Grace, welcome to the program.
2: Uh, Thank you.
1: The back of your book, the first paragraph, grabbed my attention. It reads like this. That morning, a beautiful day on the tropical island of Papua New Guinea, Grace Fabian brimmed in excitement over the idea that she and her husband Edmund were close to finishing their missionary project, the translation of the Nabak New Testament. But while in the midst of translating the love chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, someone murdered Edmund. This is a true story, and it's your story, your life, isn't it?
2: Yes, I have uh, lived every every word of it.
1: And how long ago did this tragedy take place?
2: Uh, This was in 1993.
1: Ninety-three, And prior to that, you had also been with Wycliffe and done translation of uh, Native languages around the globe. What other location had you worked in?
2: Uh, I started out as a single gal in uh, southern Mexico, working with the Wisteko Indians there, a Mayan language group. But then when I got married, I realized that by the time my husband would have learned that language, we would be close to finishing that New Testament. So he and I decided on a completely new place, and that's why we went to Papua New Guinea.
1: The length of time it takes for individuals like Wycliffe Translators to learn a foreign language or learn a language in a dialect, what is the length of time it takes?
2: Oh, well, it differs <laughs> according to... Uh, the difficulty of the language, and every situation is quite different. Uh, you have to remember, it's not just learning the language, it is all, the language has never been written down before. So it involves devising an alphabet, and uh, teaching people to read, uh, figuring out the whole sound system and the grammar, um, <clears throat> and putting it in written form.
1: Is there a correlation between English as far as the the, uh, letters and so on that uh, Wycliffe uses, or do they have to develop letters that that match the indigenous tribes?
2: Yes, they match uh, whatever country they are in. In Papua New Guinea, we used our English-type letters uh, because the country uh, was given to Australia, as a trust territory by the united nations so the people there were already familiar with with our our type of letters but of course if we're working in a place like india for instance uh, then they use a completely different script
1: what was the reason you wanted to tell your story besides the obvious
2: <laughs> uh, well When it was time to return to the U.S., my son, my oldest son, said that he had seen me doing a lot of writing while we lived in Papua New Guinea. And he said, you know, Mom, this is is our legacy, too. We all want copies of those stories. So I started out just making some photocopies and going through my old letters and so on. Uh, but then it turned out to be more work than I thought, and uh, I needed to edit some. Um, some of them were old carbon copies on onion skin, and I happened to describe to my friend what what I was doing, and she said, well, think about it, Grace. She said, it's not just your children who want those stories. We all want to, to read those stories. Write a book, for goodness sakes. And so that's how I started. And, of course, as I got along, uh, then I realized more and more how important the message of the book really is.
0: Who
1: do you think will find this story fascinating and uh, will find it appealing?
2: Well, I'm a widow. haven't always been a widow, but uh, I think widows and widowers will enjoy the book, uh, benefit from it. I find that a lot of uh, young people, young adults, college-age students, they're looking for inspiration. They're looking for a challenge. Uh, they, Many of them are considering a career in how to change the world, <laughs> and so I think they would find that an inspiring me, an inspiring role model. And I realize as I go around speaking that uh, there is a lot of, pain and loss and tragedy in this world, and I think this book helps people going through crisis because they can say, well, look, uh, she made it. <laughs> Maybe I will too. Uh,
1: this is a very difficult story to tell. At least it would be if I were writing the book and it was my personal story. How long did it take you to put this book together?
2: I started in 2005 just taking tentative steps with going to a writer's conference, uh, subscribing to a writer's magazine. I really did not know anything about about how to write a book. And so I had to get a lot of help from other people. And so I put some drafts out there of various chapters and had critiques. Uh, groups going over it, and uh, it was first published in 2009.
1: What is the one thing you want readers to take away from reading Outrageous Grace?
2: Well, I guess to say that these are not really eloquent words, uh, but they are true, and I think it is a testimony to God's unfailing love.
1: Is there a mission project still underway in Papua New Guinea where you had been working?
2: my husband and i were the only two people there with our four children we finished uh, uh, i finished the navak new testament in 1998 and it was dedicated to the glory of god Uh, just last year exactly at this time i was back in papua new guinea visiting the navak people and i found that the 7000 new testaments that we had printed at that time have all been distributed and they are asking for a reprint.
1: Oh, that's um, good news.
2: I thought I thought you know 7000 at least there would be one copy for each family. There are about 25000 people who speak this language, but now they are asking for more copies.
1: That's encouraging. Absolutely great news. In your book, Outrageous Grace, is there a particular scene or several scenes that should stand out to the reader?
2: Well, uh, for me, one of the most moving scenes is when my mother-in-law fled with her six children during World War II, Uh, fled from Poland, another very moving scene, and and I even get a little choked up as I talk about it, is when the wife of the man who killed my husband uh, asked me to be her sister. Mm. And uh, there are several scenes there. Uh, One Nabok man staying up all night after watching the Jesus film, the one and only movie in the Nabok language, and stayed up all night hunched over the fire and uh, pondering the fact that my oldest son had come back to them and uh, the scenes about the life of Christ and just puzzling over that and uh, in the morning saying, I, I know what the message is for the Napa people. <laughs> the way Jonathan and his family have forgiven us is the same kind of forgiveness that Jesus offers us when he died on the cross for our sins. It's just breathtaking uh, what what God was working in his heart. In fact, it marked the turning point for the Nabok people in understanding why in the world had we two crazy white skins come to live among them.
1: There is a similar accounts that happened in I believe the fifties in South America and of course I know you're aware of the Nate Saint story. This has yes. some of that overtone.
2: Yes, of course that is a different country but the similar in that
1: a missionary lost was his
2: forgiveness life forgiveness offered yes. uh, it's a missionary story how uh, Nate Saint gave his life along with the four others.
1: How would you introduce your book to someone?
2: Well <laughs> that it's a, a living testimony that will challenge and comfort and inspire others to risk a great loss in order to follow the one who also gave his all. When you read how Jesus, after his resurrection, met with his disciples, he, he reached out his hands. They could see the scars, I'm sure. And he said, peace be with you and then he also said as the father hath sent me so i'm sending you so the father sent me to give my life some of you may have to give your life also to reach the ends of the world
1: how is your book different than others in the marketplace that tell of outrageous grace
2: of course it's it's in a it's in a different uh completely different place than some of the other missionary books, and it also tells about my going back.
1: Are your chapters uh, long, or are they are they uh, filled with details? How would you describe your writing style?
2: And all the chapters are are quite quite short. It's uh, except for the heavy emotional content of the chapters. It's a very very easy read.
1: And you continue to do public speaking not only of your history, but, uh, of course, telling of your current faith and encouraging others. Do you also have a website?
2: Uh, Yes, I do. It's called uh, www.gracefabian.com.
1: And was there, besides the obvious, what was the most challenging part about writing your book? And was there something also that was rewarding? (laughs) Um,
2: I think probably one of the most challenging things was that I have hundreds of stories. After all, we lived there 35 and a half years, and every day there was a, at least one story. <laughs> and so when I came to writing the book, I, I started out just writing volumes, and then I was given some wise advice, and told me, uh, people told me I had to cut out some of those stories and make sure that I keep just with that one thread, that one theme of forgiveness and and a triumph over tragedy, that theme. And so the challenge was to how many of those wonderful stories would I have to cut out?
1: Thank you for sharing your story with us today. The title of the book is Outrageous Grace, A Story of Tragedy and Forgiveness, and our guest author grace l fabian grace where can listeners get a copy of your book
2: uh well they could on my website or they can uh, they could write to me if they want an autographed copy uh, they need to write to me uh, but of course the book is also available from iUniverse.
1: thank you for sharing your story for iUniverse, this is j
0: douglas barker
3: Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear the latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix.
4: Connect with Juliana and connect with what lies beneath. Friday afternoons at 4 3 central on toginet.com.
0: to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen.
1: Greetings for Steve Jorgensen and for iUniverse. This is J. Douglas Barker. The title of the book is The Mist of God, Volume 3 of a Magdala Trilogy. I welcome to the program author Peter Longley. Thank you, Peter, for joining me today. Oh, it's a pleasure to be with you. Tell me about the background of this. This is a a third version or not a third but a, a third edition or third contribution to a trilogy of books. Tell me about the 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 trilogy itself.
3: Well the trilogy is a plausible life and times of Mary Magdalene, who is um a character that we don't know a great deal about. Uh so it does give one quite a lot of license in fiction. Uh, but I have tried to use Mary Magdalene as a kind of a spokesperson for uh, actually giving a a, a theological viewpoint that uh, uh, I think is probably quite challenging to conventional Christianity, but also uh, probably more acceptable in a general way to the general public.
1: So your primary target is going to be the general public in your, your novels then? Yes. 700 pages, that's an ambitious task for just one of the three books. Uh, How did you come to uh, put this story together? Where did it come from?
3: Um, I do have a theological background. My master's uh, from Cambridge University in England uh, is in theology. I studied theology in the 1960s, early 60s, at Cambridge University. Uh, And uh, so it's always been, you know, an an interest in my life. Um, And um, I, I think I became inspired, actually, to write this trilogy initially uh, in the late 1980s, long before Mary Magdalene was actually a popular topic at all, um, somewhat inspired by um, uh, uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber's uh, Jesus Christ Superstar and uh, uh, the fact that he kind of took an interesting uh, viewpoint on Mary Magdalene.
1: And the audience that you hope to reach, who would that be?
3: Well, I, I think when we look at society today in the Western world, um, uh, Christianity is, 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 is dwindling. Uh, and, um, uh, there are an awful lot of people who are curious, but they, they don't really accept, uh, uh, organized religion as it's sort of handed down to them. And, uh, I, I think I'm primarily really aiming at those, at those who question, um, which I think is the vast majority of people actually.
1: I personally subscribe to disorganized religion. What theme of the book do you think is relevant to current news and topics
3: in the world? Well, uh, um, Mary Magdalene herself in in, in theological circles has become quite an interesting topic in the last twenty years. Uh, But as I said, I really started writing about her before she kind of came to the forefront. Um, But um, uh, uh, I I put the glue really um, in the, the Magdala Trilogy, and particularly in the Mist of God, are uh, on um, trade in the Roman Empire and how significant that was uh, for the spread of Christianity in, in its early stages. Um, the the Roman Empire was was an enormous trading force, uh, and um, that's the kind of glue on which I've hung my storyline. Parallel to that today. You know, we've got today... Uh, a, a, a much more global economy. Well, if you look at the Roman Empire and you see the world as it was perceived at that time, the Roman Empire was pretty much the world with a, a knowledge of a world of Kassai, China, somewhere in the, in the distance, and there were strong trade links, actually, with China, mostly through India uh, in, in the time of the Roman Empire. So you had something somewhat similar then to what you have now, a kind of a global, uh, a global link through trade.
1: And India, you feel, was important in the first century as well as today?
3: Uh, b- very much so, yes. Uh, actually, India becomes quite important in, in the midst of God, because I um, I follow the legend uh, that Jesus went to India. Now, I don't personally believe that Jesus went to India, and I don't make Jesus go to India uh, in my Magdala Trilogy. Uh, but um, because of the Mary Magdalene connection, uh, there is... Um, uh, a, a suggestion that Mary Magdalene and Jesus may have had a son of the same name who could possibly have gone to India, and that's uh, how I follow that legend through.
1: You also write, or have made notice, of the Gospel of Thomas. Tell us yes. the story of the Gospel of Thomas. Where and how did that get written?
3: Well, the Gospel of Thomas is part of a, a group of very, very interesting um, Documents that have been unearthed in the last uh, um, half century, called the Nag Hammadi texts, uh, and it's, it's one of many documents in that group. They were mostly written in the second century. They're written in the Coptic Church in Egypt, um, and they have given us some uh, quite alternative thinking on on, uh, uh, first, uh, on first century events. Uh, the Gospel of Thomas interests me uh, because it is it, it, it does sort of read like a a lot of sayings of Jesus. Uh, Of course, none of us know anything that Jesus actually said, Uh, but um, uh, it it does give some sort of interesting insights into um, a a more, um, how would I say, a a sense that divinity is more universal than than, than, um, it it comes out in, in, in the traditional Gospels. And the other thing that's interesting about Thomas, to me, as far as the mist of God is concerned, is that uh, uh, it's traditionally been believed for a long time that that Thomas actually made his way to India. Uh, And actually, if you go to Chennai Madras in India today, you can actually see the so-called church uh, that Thomas founded there. Um, Now, this is a legend, it's a tradition, but I, I have made it actually a reality in the mist of God that Thomas... Uh, is actually the means of getting Ben Joshua through uh, through Joseph of Arimathea's trading empire uh, out to India. Um, there was a very well-researched book called Jesus Lived in India, written by Holger Kirsten a number of years ago. And I like I said, I don't subscribe to the theory that Jesus survived the crucifixion or, if, um, uh, 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 or even before that um, ever went to India. Uh, but um, I, I think it's possible to follow that legend through, Uh, with the idea that maybe a son of Jesus might have got to India. And in my particular story, actually, uh, he he ends his life in India. He he disappears. He he disappears from history. Um, And um, so um, uh, we don't have to follow any sort of idea of a lineage of Jesus Christ, like the Da Vinci Code or anything like that.
1: In this book, you've got 700 pages, it's the third in a trilogy. Would you consider it a complete read by itself, or does it need the other yes. two?
4: Each uh,
3: each of the three books of the trilogy, the first one's called A Star's Legacy, and the second one's called Beyond the Olive Grove, and this one, The Mist of God, each of them can be read as, as an individual book. Um, there are references back to the other two books, which would be clearer if you had read them, obviously, But each time I introduce those references back, I try to give some sort of dialogue that will give a little bit of an explanation of of that connection.
1: As an experienced author, how long did it take to complete this third in the trilogy series?
3: Actually, not very long, about, uh, I suppose, in total, about 18 months, but... uh, I had started writing it, like I said, way back in the late 1980s, and so about two-thirds of it was only a matter of revising what I had written before and then then finishing it, uh, which um, I, I did primarily because the first two books of the trilogy had already been published and we needed to get the third one out. <laughs>
1: The marketplace has a lot of books and novels that deal with historical and religious topics. Some of these deal with a topic that is called the end times. Are there any areas of your book that allude to this idea?
3: Well, it is. If we um, look at uh, um, the the Jewish world of the first century, and we look at uh, uh, our gospel, um, a traditional gospel um, uh, record. Uh, it, it certainly the end time plays a part, and uh, uh, but the, the Christian interpretation of that is that uh, ultimately, you know, Jesus uh, will return and we have a um, a, um, a wonderful world. Uh, I don't uh, subscribe to that because as a theologian, I tend to look at uh, uh, the eschatological work—that's the end times work—particularly when you look at uh, um, the revelation of uh, the book of Revelation. This is not actually um, historically written about something in the future. It's actually written about something very much in the present at that time, and that is the uh, fall of Jerusalem to Rome in 70 A.D. Uh, and all that, um, uh, that that goes with that. Um, and so, uh, uh, I see the apocalypse actually as a kind of a, a historical historical hysteria in a way, uh, but based actually on on, on uh, not really. Uh, divine events but on, uh, on on actual uh, real history uh, and uh, as such um, that brings all sorts of interesting questions about the authorship of uh, the book of Revelation which couldn't possibly have been written by, by, by John the Apostle because he was probably deceased and if he wasn't deceased he was very very old blind and quite incapable of writing such a book or even climbing the hill in Patmos to write it And so, actually, in the midst of God, um, uh, I kind of explain how that whole um, scenario sort of comes about. And I do end, actually, with the book of Revelation, and I do end uh, with an interpretation uh, of of, of the apocalypse. Uh, I I wouldn't want to go too much into detail as to how I do that, because it would kind of give away the ending of the book to some extent. Uh, But um, uh, I do certainly explore that. And uh, I, I do because it's in fictional form, I'm able to explore that by introducing a much more reasonable uh, uh, solution as to how uh, the book of Revelation actually came to be written.
1: How would you describe your book? Other books in the marketplace deal with similar topics. What makes yours different?
3: I think what makes mine different is the basic concept of, the, uh, uh, of uh, uh, divinity. Uh, um, I see uh, the whole message of Jesus not about Jesus being the Son of God, not about jesus being uh a, a means of salvation uh but i see see Jesus as a uh, uh a a means of interpreting a different form of divinity the divinity of all that is i I do not uh, subscribe personally to uh a theory that there is some kind of great God up there in the sky uh that uh dictates to us um Uh, I I would rather see the divinity of every vibrating atom as being the divine. Uh, And uh, uh, I use Mary Magdalene, actually, as kind of the spokesperson for this, and that's why her son going to India becomes interesting because it kind of merges a little bit with uh, uh, Hindu and Buddhist thoughts and so on and so forth. Uh, But um, uh, I think that that is where I really primarily differ. I am creating through these novels a way of looking at the traditional, the, the traditional Christian story, and uh, seeing a different interpretation of divinity coming out of it. I think that uh, one of the reasons that uh, so many have fallen away from uh, uh, traditional, uh, organized uh, Christianity uh, in, in more recent times is because the scientific challenge has uh, simply taken them away from the traditional interpretation. And if you can find the interpretation that, that can kind of combine the two, the Christian story is recognizable throughout the Magdala Trilogy, and is certainly recognizable throughout the Mist of God, which quite closely follows uh, the sort of uh, historicity of the Acts of the Apostles. Uh, but um, the, it, the, the internal message that is being uh, fought with is, is a different interpretation of divinity. But I think it's it's much more in keeping with today's interpretation of the universe.
1: Well, Peter, thanks for sharing your insight and the background into the book, The Mist of God, Volume 3 of the Magdala Trilogy, and our author has been Peter Longley. Peter, where can we get a copy of your book?
3: Well, it's available um, anywhere. It's available uh, uh, on Amazon. It's available on Barnes & Noble, and you you can uh, look it up that way. You're not likely to find it on a bookshelf. You may have to order it, but it'll only take a couple of days to order. And it's also available from my website, which gives you a lot of information about all my books, www.PeterLongleyBooks.com.
1: Thank you, Peter, for joining me today. For iUniverse, this is J. Douglas Barker.
0: You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages.
4: Join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu, Wednesday nights at 10, 9 Central on Toginet.com. Helen Wu was born and raised in San Francisco's Chinatown, and after a very difficult upbringing, fighting depression, abuse, and addictions, she finally finds herself genuinely happy inside and out. Helen believes in taking our positive thinking and doing something positive to achieve a positive outcome. She's here to make a positive difference in your life, to be your game changer, your aha moment mentor. She's ready to help both men and women get into a better place. Helen Wu is also the author of Self-Aid Success Stories, 25 Success Stories from Successful Entrepreneurs. Inspired by Ellen DeGeneres, Helen wants the world to know that just because we find ourselves in a difficult situation doesn't mean we have to stay there we can aid ourselves to a better life. So join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu, Wednesday nights at 10, 9 Central, on toginet.com.
0: Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for
1: Steve Jorgensen and for iUniverse. This is J. Douglas Barker. Our book today is titled Wake Up Calls. And our author is Connie Gardner. Connie, welcome to the program.
5: Well, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be on.
1: This is a young adult fiction. Tell our listeners the setting for the events that take place in your book.
5: Actually, in the Great Lakes area, uh, I have lake, uh, adventures going on in Lake Huron and in a fictional town, um, probably on the eastern side of, Mi- of Michigan, but any place in the Great Lakes.
1: Thank you. In fact, I grew up in the Lake Huron area, so we have some, some oh, commonality really. about the storyline. What inspired you to put this book together? What motivated you to decide, I want to be an author and publish this book?
5: Well, I've always had a passion to write, but I never seemed to find the time. And I enjoyed journaling, but I lost a lot of those notes. But it probably helped me develop my voice. And eventually, I answered one of those ads that said, do you want to become a children's writer? And I responded and started taking classes at the Institute of Children's Literature. And for one of the assignments, I wrote the first chapter of Wake Up Calls, not knowing at the time it would become the first chapter. But my uh, protagonist, Krista, was developed, and I just felt compelled to continue her story. I'm drawn to write for young adults because I worry about how easily they can be influenced. And by writing this book and the ones to follow, I hope to encourage young people to think beyond the moment. You know, they can observe and listen. Don't be afraid to ask questions and develop that self-confidence and like who you are.
1: Very important. And and self-esteem with young adults right now has become a crisis condition with uh, bullying and other issues that they're dealing with. positive book is certainly something that I would like to see more of my teenage connections uh, gravitate toward. Uh, Describe the the process of writing your book. Who do you think this is going to appeal to specifically?
5: Well, I've targeted uh, young adults, probably 14 and up. However, I think even 20-year-olds uh, can enjoy reading this and, and beyond because there's a message there, and I've had many parents tell me that they enjoyed reading it. And an important thing, too, is to get young people interested in reading. This is a simple book, and it's got a good message, and I want to snag those kids, or don't know how to put it, to have them start reading it and get so involved and engrossed in it that they'll finish it because it's just good for to encourage young people to read.
1: What are the underlying themes that you have written into Wake Up Calls?
5: Well, it, basically to encourage readers to avoid stereotypes and to stand up for themselves. I love my characters. I've got four in there that are very dominant and I'll add more in another book. But this story is to have people be, promote teenage responsibility and encourage young women to trust their intuition and avoid stereotypes, stand up for themselves, that type of thing.
1: And Mario is one of your key characters. Tell us a little yes. bit about his background.
5: Well, Mario is college-bound son of the owner of this Watson's flower shop where Krista, my protagonist, is working part time, and she falls for Mario, but she also falls for another fellow, Jeff, who is kind of reckless and uh, has an unsavory reputation. but he's got some good points too. And then at the flower shop, there's Cheyenne, and she's very bizarre and she has a, a she's a great character. She's spunky and unique, and it's a combination of these four very different uh, young people coming together and the interactions that go on and then their stories about how they handle things and what goes on in their lives.
1: Were you able to draw these characters from your own connections in in life or did you have a complete uh, creative influx of ideas uh, from eating pizza the night before? How did this happen?
5: <laughs> I tried to have them to create them Totally uh, different, and not people in my life, but, you know, you'll find a character trait in one person and another character trait, and you kind of mix them up and put them together, and you end up with a stew. (laughs) And it it was fun developing them, and I'm still developing these characters. They keep coming out with new ideas or new problems, and it's actually fun to write.
1: And you have some connection with flower shops in your past, in addition to being a writer. Tell us about yes. that.
5: For years, I uh, was part owner of a flower shop, in, of several flower shops and greenhouses in Michigan. And they always say, write about what you know. Well, I know the flower business, and I also know quite a bit about boating and sailing and having been on Lake Huron for many years. And so I use those two concepts that I, uh, I wanted my characters to be immersed in because that way we could put some adventure in it and, and then the, the job situation of a young person being responsible and working and the things that go on with the first job because that's very important for young people, that first job.
1: In addition to being an author, you have other careers that you have been pursuing. Tell us a little about your other interests
5: Well, initially, I started out as a dental hygienist years ago, and then got into the flower business. And then after moving down to Marco Island, I went back into the dental hygiene business and worked for several years. And then finally, I decided I really want to take the time to write. And so I thought, I'm going to do this.
1: Your book is written in the first person. Why did you choose to write it that way instead of from the observation angle?
5: I feel when you write it in first person, it gives the reader the chance to identify with that person and to feel their feelings and to think like they think. And it was fun writing in first person. Um, I hadn't planned on it initially, and then... my voice started just coming out in first person and I thought I guess this is where I'm going
1: Follow the lead of your voice, your inner, inner voice That's <laughs> not voice. a bad choice as a writer I think it's a good one. Are there adults in this book and if so, how are they developed or are they developed at all?
5: There are a few adult characters but they're one dimensional and uh, they say that's just the way teenagers prefer And uh, but I think the uh, real life adults will appreciate the fact that this novel contains only a few innocent kisses and not even a suggestion of drugs or alcohol, and it's completely free of vampires, werewolves, and any paranormal events. So my, my book, I want it to be very realistic and with good characters that are going to uh, perhaps influence the readers.
1: Well, in spite of the lack of vampires, I'm sure this is a great novel that people will enjoy reading because it is uh, based on a more natural and realistic view of life. Is there a specific way that you'd introduce this book to someone if they don't know of you or know about the writing that you have undertaken?
5: I'd like to promote it as a romantic adventure, and it promotes teenage responsibility. I want to encourage my readers to avoid stereotypes and stand up for themselves and not follow what is popular simply for popularity's sake, I'm hoping the word can get out, and I'll just continue to write and add to this series and see what happens.
1: Connie, my curiosity is just, uh, are there some scenes in here that might be picked up by, say, Oh, the, uh, the Hallmark Channel, for example. And uh, they might look at your book and say, this would make a great movie of the week. Is there a scene in there that really would grab our attention?
5: Oh, I think so, especially in this boating scene when they're out sailing and it gets quite rough. And they see this orange ball out in the distance and they sail toward it and realize that it's not an orange ball. It's a man in a life jacket, an old man, and they try to figure out how to save him. They're in a one-man sailboat, the two of them, and they are going to drag this third person aboard. And they have to get that sailboat, which is in the in the Great Lakes, back to shore. And they do. And it's quite a an adventure.
1: Connie, you've mentioned about sailing, and uh, I know your background there. You also have told me that there is a key bit of dialogue that's associated with this. Share it with us.
5: Yes, Jay. Uh, this Mario, the, one of the characters that uh, Krista is interested in, he does not like the sailing partner that Krista has. And he tells Krista, he said, Jeff's out for a good time. He'll always save himself, but can he save you? And i thought that was pretty interesting because they are in in the great Lakes. storms can come up very quickly and you can get into big trouble if you don't know what you're doing and he was afraid that uh, krista was taking chances out sailing with this jeff
1: the uh, underlying message there is watch the character of the people you hang out with
5: that's very good yes watch the characters you hang out with
1: One of your other colorful characters is a creative spirit. Her name is Cheyenne.
5: This Cheyenne, this character at the flower shop, who is very bizarre. She dresses from uh, Goodwill and Salvation Army and wherever she can get something for 50 cents or under. And she finds her own way to dress and be bizarre. And she's quite a character, and she... Influences my protagonists and others that it's okay to be yourself, be different, and get by without spending a lot of money.
1: Yeah, good message. I can relate to that, unfortunately, in in some in some strange ways. Uh, tell me how how is your book different from other novels that are geared towards the teen audience in the marketplace?
5: Well, I think the fact that there aren't any vampires in it—that's
1: can't have everything.
5: Uh, one of the one of the big ones in there, and there's no, you know, drugs or a lot of heavy sex or anything like that. Um, and this uh, writing in first person, I think, is interesting. Most of the books I've read are not written in first person, and I I just think it gives my reader uh, an immediate uh, attraction to want to continue reading because they can put themselves into the characters that I've written about.
1: Connie, this being your first novel, um, how long did it take to complete, and were there any challenges in coming up with the storyline and putting the book into print?
5: It probably took a period of a few years because I was taking classes and writing uh, chapters, and then all of a sudden it started to come together, and the last year I really worked hard on it, and uh, the next one is going more quickly because I've kind of gotten my my sea legs, so to speak. And uh, the challenging part is going to be marketing. I think that's challenging for everyone. And I have friends in my writer's group that we're all trying to market our books. And to get out there, especially as a self-published author in fighting the new challenges in the digital world. Oh, my goodness. Everything is digital nowadays. So you have to make sure you're on top of your computer skills. So, like I say, it's a challenge, and the fun part is writing and rewriting, but marketing seems to take an awful lot of time.
1: I'm sure that'll get easier as time progresses, and uh, the... Uh, the bug to write has uh, has attacked you, and you are in the process of writing a second novel, which is fabulous. This one is titled Wake Up Calls, and our author is Connie Gardner. Connie, thank you for joining us today. Where can I get a copy of your book?
5: You can go on online, Amazon.com, and it can be downloaded on Kindle, and it can be bought in stores. Any of your local bookstores, you could go in and inquire, and If they don't have it, uh, they can go online and find it for you. And then it was published by iUniverse, and so they also have it.
1: Thank you, Connie. And
5: I'm working on marketing.
1: That is is great, And, and best of luck to you in the future. This is a great novel and certainly fits a niche market that is important. Teens need to have positive, reinforced messages. Thank you for writing Wake Up Calls.
5: And thank you. It's been a real pleasure talking to you today.
1: Enjoyed visiting with you. For iUniverse, this is Jay Douglas Barker.
0: iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by Toginet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.